strong cultures can produce terrific results, and they can also produce disastrous results. So not only do you have to have a strong culture, but one that is adaptable, that is built around values that are involved in learning and innovation and people and their progress, basically. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I am talking with and learning from James Heskett. We are, I suppose, talking primarily about his latest book, Win From Within, which is about building organizational culture for competitive advantage. The essence of which is why would you do anything about your culture at all unless it drives competitive advantage? And James has spent 30 years on this journey. His book, Win From Within, is I think I say it's a myth buster, but actually it's a belief shattering book. There are things that you believe to be true about building an organization culture, that it might be hard, that it might not impact your bottom line performance. And James does a great job in the book, taking that apart and building it back up so that you know the truth about the potential impact of changing your culture and making your culture great. But I've been reading books by James for a long time. It, 1997, he put out a book called The Service Profit Chain. And we talk a little bit about that. At Harvard, he was teaching marketing and he realized what is it that we need to do to attract customers? And then he realized that actually attracting customers was having great employees. And if you could create a great environment for employees where they stay a long time and love your business, that's a precursor. And your customers will not love your company unless your employees love your company. This trifecta that he talks about, profit, employee engagement and customer engagement. That trifecta is at the heart of most, but not all, amazingly successful businesses. Before we started recording, he said he'd, he'd actually written a Harvard business case. Harvard teaches its MBA students through uh, case studies. And he said he was the author of the case study on Rackspace. So we chatted a bit about that before we were recording. Towards the end, we were talking about hybrid work and as a studier of culture and the enablement of culture, it was great to hear James's view on hybrid work and what impact that will have on culture and potentially on business performance. So a fantastic conversation. I, in the early 2000s, James put out a book called The Value Profit Chain, which I have said to many people, I think is one of the best business books ever written. So there's another one from your on your reading list. Although if like me, most of your stuff these days is on Audible, it's pre-audible, so it's uh, paper copy or, or Kindle only. 
So look, I had a great time talking to James. It's a little bit of a longer episode than normal. Just we had so much to talk about, but I'm sure you'll enjoy it nonetheless. I'm James Heskett, a, uh, a, an emeritus professor at the Harvard Business School, where I taught for a number of years in a variety of subjects. Uh, they hired me to teach business logistics, and I ended up also teaching marketing and uh, service management, entrepreneurial management, general management. And so, uh, you know, you learn by teaching. And so this was all part of my educational process over about 40 plus years at the Harvard Business School, where I also uh, was the head of the MBA program. And in, all, in fact, all of the academic programs at the school at one point. I didn't have to raise any money though. <laughs> <laughs> in any event, I've also uh, consulted on several continents, uh, I've been on more than a dozen uh, for-profit company boards as well as not-for-profit boards, advisory committees, Swiss Air, ING, and I've written several books. In fact, about 20 of them, of which this one is the last, okay? Win, win from within. Win from within, that's it. So if you want to win from within, here's the recipe right here. Brilliant. James, when you said you would you taught entrepreneurial management. How is that different from non-entrepreneurial management? <laughs> well, as a matter of fact, uh, I think non-entrepreneurial managers could learn from entrepreneurial managers. You know the routine. It's uh, test, then invest is one of those uh, big rules. Would you rather be rich or would you rather be king? which is uh, an important question that every entrepreneur has to ask him or herself. You wanna get rich and bring in a, a professional manager or do you wanna remain king and be carried out feet first, in a sense? A variety of, I think, things that would be very useful for at least uh, some of our non-entrepreneurial managers, if there are any left. Simon, I'm not sure there are any left in this age of uh, agility and fast-moving uh, times, we've trashed long-range planning. You can't do that anymore. Uh, don't waste your time doing long-range planning because, uh, hey, it's not going to be relevant by the time you get there anyway, so why do it? That kind of thing. We've got COVID and we've got wars and we have everything else. All kinds of things <laughs> related to staying agile uh, and trying a lot of things and keeping what works. Yeah, looking at your list of public your list of books certainly, there's a theme there still in your most recent book around this culture and customer service or customer obsession. Sure. What got you interested in that? Why? What was it where you went? I'm going to write a book on this. And then it's like, I'm not going to write a book on something else. I'm going to keep coming back to this. People aren't listening. <laughs> well, I think it, going back to the fact that I, I was not hired to teach marketing, but I ended up teaching marketing. I, I developed a, a, a real respect and for and interest in uh, customers. And so we began thinking about what it is that really influences customers. And uh, when we combine that with our research on service management, we began finding that it's employee engagement that drives customer engagement because we were trying to figure out why customers do what they do. 
And that then got me into the whole issue of culture as I moved from marketing to customer orientation to the things that drive customer behavior back into the uh, workforce and the like. I was trying to think of the name of the author, but he wrote a, a book called Customers Come Second. And the thesis was that, uh, you know, employees come first and the two of them will drive profit for the bottom line for investors. So we got to thinking of this as the idea that truly outstanding firms are really good at managing what we call a trifecta. That is creating high levels of employee engagement, high levels of customer engagement that result from that and high profit sales growth and profit levels for the investor. That, that trifecta effect. Interesting example, currently, you know, people are lauding this incredible success of Amazon. And we left Amazon off our list because of a passionate concern for customers, an incredible design. I mean, you can't avoid using Amazon because it's so easy, right, as a customer. I had an occasion to go to the Barnes and Noble website the other day, another bookseller. Just try it. Go to Amazon and then go to Barnes and Noble if you're looking for a book and you will see the difference in the customer orientation. So Amazon does customers incredibly well. Any investor going back uh, a few years in Amazon will say, I, I couldn't, it, my best investment couldn't be better, right? So you got two legs of this three-legged stool satisfied. How about the third leg, the employees? Amazon's being unionized. They've been just in the last week or two, six unions or unions in six facilities that Amazon operates have been organized and they're coming. They're coming for Amazon. Uh, you know, they're gonna be taking votes everywhere there's a warehouse. Somehow or other, employees weren't at the top of Jeff Bezos's mind when he uh, when he designed that service. Now, okay, uh, on the other side, maybe technology will come you know further to the rescue because I'm sure a lot of those jobs are boring and they really ought to be eliminated anyway. But Amazon's got a lot of employees. I'm not sure. Is there are there a million of them? Almost, I'm sure. And they that's. That's a lot of jobs to uh, to mechanize. When you were putting together that trifecta in the list, who was the one you liked the most? Well, we have our traditional organizations. There's an organization in uh, France called Chateau Form. They take over old chateaus, convert them into management development centers, and market them to... Uh, you know, development people for the training of, of managers, okay? From all over the world. I mean, they, they come to, they do a terrific job by staffing those chateaus with couples who are given the sole responsibility to think of that as the home of their dreams. You know, they've always dreamed of living in a chateau. This is your opportunity and it didn't cost you anything. So the idea is, uh, and you design a service saying, uh, all of our guests uh, should regard themselves as owners as well. 
so that there are no charges. It's an open bar. If, if you want to drink, go down and fix a drink. And we're not going to keep a tab. We're not going to do anything. Go to the kitchen and get a snack. It's your home. So you've got the employees uh, invested in thinking about this as their home and as hostess and host, and your, your guests uh, served very well. No surprise that there's probably a pretty good bottom line at Chateau Form. So yeah. that would be one, uh, one example. Southwest Airlines in the, in the U.S. Uh, still, still carries the torch for uh, a successful trifecta and so forth. Well, it's it's funny, isn't it? Because for a long time, all of the major U.S. carriers would be like, "Yeah, there's those funny people from Texas," but don't worry, they're not very big. And now they're the largest carrier in the United States. For a long time, they've been profitable, the most profitable. But now they're the largest. It's um, it's amazing where you can get to with compound growth. I kicked off one of my chapters in my in this latest book with the old saying, uh, <laughs> at least in this country, that uh, the definition of arrogance is a Marine from Texas who graduated from the Harvard Business School and then go into a variety of uh, things that the Marines do and the Harvard Business School does and all that sort of thing. But in fact, you know, Southwest Airlines has proven that uh, probably to be wrong because people from Texas can be less than fully arrogant. Although <laughs> if, if, you, if you scratch the surface, you know, underneath the surface, there's, it's still there. You got to be big and you got to be loud and, uh, and you have to be decisive, you know, whether you're right or wrong. I used to have an economics professor that's uh, and we, uh, a guy named Ted Kreps at the Stanford Business School. And he used to, we used to say of uh, Professor Kreps, never in doubt, but often wrong. <laughs> yeah. James, the win from within, it's sort of a, a bit of a myth buster, you know, because there are, I think, you lay out the thesis that many of the things that people think about culture, and now that they've gone they followed you on this journey from trying to solve problems for customers to realizing that the customer will only love your company if your employees do. And how do you get your employees to love your business? Well, you'd have to try and structure it in a certain way. What are some of these myths that people are carrying? Is it myth or belief? Maybe it's belief. Because when you say myth, people go, oh, okay, right. Yeah, no, I don't believe in that. Whereas but belief, it's you don't even think about it as a thing that you've that is that you think of as fundamentally you. It, it doesn't even get, become challenged. You just, just don't give it another thought. I think many of us hold, either consciously or unconsciously, consciously, is that uh, culture somehow is a. Um, it, it's really terrific. It's a, it's important. It's essential. But it's kind of a soft concept. It, it's uh, touchy feely, and uh, you can't quantify it. And that's nonsense. Going way back, a co-author of mine who actually wrote the, a foreword for this book, a guy named John Cotter, and I studied 30 years ago, if you can believe it, uh, the impact of corporate culture on performance. And we found that uh, it has an incredible impact. We found several things. Uh, I'm not talking about strong cultures because strong cultures can produce terrific results. 
and they can also produce disastrous results. So not only do you have to have a strong culture, but one that uh, is adaptable, that is built around values that are involved in learning and innovation and uh, people and their progress, basically. So we, we defined what a, what a healthy culture can really do. And then we measured what it can do for you. And the bottom line impact was dramatic. And we, so uh, the study, uh, even though it took us two or three years because we had several false starts, uh, the study convinced us, it, you know, made uh, believers out of us. And ever since then, I've been studying the impact of corporate culture on bottom line performance. If you go into an organization that has uh, a lot of people in contact with customers, that's my uh, version of heaven on earth, you know, because that's when you get the impact of the employee on the customer and being transferred directly. In an organization with those characteristics, regardless of who the customer is, it may be another business, it may be a, a consumer, uh, what have you. In an organization like that, culture, and this is what I try to measure in the book, culture can account for up to 40% of the difference in the operating income of two units of an organization in the same business, doing actually exactly the same business mix. Oh, okay. So when you when you when you control for customers and price and everything else, you've actually got two business units, and you're able to say, "Look, this is as close a comparison as it's ever possible to get." Let's have a look at the culture. Yeah, and you never you never have as you know as close a comparison as you want. But that's about as close as you can get. That's where it's uh, in that kind of an organization. It's the highest. Now, is it a, a, that high in all organizations? No. Uh, think of a manufacturing organization that uh, has very little direct contact between its employees and customers. But then think of a company like Nucor Steel that uh, built a lot of mini mills and began producing steel in a different fashion. When the demand declines at Nucor, uh, the people come out of the manufacturing facility and they're sent out into the field to sell. Because obviously we can make more than we can sell. So the people who make the steel need to go out and sell it in order to create a balance between supply and demand. Customers are astounded when these guys walk in and they're mostly guys, there are a few women. They came from the steel mill to sell you some steel, you know, and they can't believe it. And why do they do it? Because everybody in that organization uh, has agreed to do whatever is necessary to make that company successful, which is a product of the shared values that are at the core of that organization's culture. Uh, they have mills that go down because they need repairs. Two or three other mills will have already sent people to help what is essentially, in most organizations, a competing group of people. If your performance system creates conflicts between your employees at Nucor, they just go. They go to help and get that, that mill up because uh, every day that mill is down is probably worth, you know, at least a couple of million dollars. It's fascinating. I remember looking, Marriott had 
when I was still at Rackspace, were opening a chain of hotels where common now to have single type of staff, you know, not front office and back office, but they found they found housekeeping people in their traditional hotels who thought they were front of house because they thought, okay, we could we could teach housekeepers to be receptionists, but the receptionists will will never be able to get receptionists who are prepared to clean bedrooms. Right? It's just a where do I sit in the scheme of things? And so they were able to take people and and then have these I guess lower cost hotels and change their operating model and have single types of single staff. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you ran into some in- interesting examples at Rackspace because uh, those were the organizations that were probably most enlightened uh, and most interested in using the kind of service that Rackspace provided. Well, yeah, but it's also it was interesting thinking back now and learning or looking at the learning journey we're on. I, I had Hurst Schultz, who was the founder of Ritz Carlton, on the podcast. Oh, they had won the Malcolm Baldridge Award for for quality, the first services business ever to do that. And so then they couldn't enter it again. But what they had to do is teach. So we at Rackspace we went to learn from Ritz Carlton. And one of the things that they had there was ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. So there's a whole thing about seven magic words. It's great, isn't it? Say so much, you know. And, well, and it's it's like it's about, I guess, balance of power. That service is not about giving power away. You know, you are not a servant. Um, but you know, the the fact that their employees, without management approval, could spend two two thousand dollars. Every person who yeah. found a problem that could be fixed by spending money could spend up to two thousand dollars to fix it instantly. Simon, how often do they actually do that? Very rarely. They, they don't have to do it, right? But they don't take advantage of the power they have. Yeah, and well, and so we came back from that, and we said, okay, well, we're gonna we charge our clients monthly recurring fee, so we're gonna give our we're gonna give our customer facing staff they can give up to two months recurring revenue without management approval. Fight the finance team are having a cardiac arrest. But actually, what we found was that we gave away less money than if the frontline staff came to the manager, explained a proposition and then went back. It was because people feel they have control, they give away less. It's just fascinating. One of the things that uh, we've written about and studied at great length is this whole idea that, first of all, you hire people for attitude, you train people for skills, provide them with a great great tech support uh, intended to make them heroes and heroines. And then you say to them, you have latitude to deliver results to your customers. A lot of people say, oh, great, uh, latitude. We'll give them latitude. And if you do that, if you do number four out of order, what you do, what you may have is chaos. You know, uh, this is a recipe. You do it one, two, three, four. It's not a cafeteria. We're not going to go in and just choose three out of the whole list. Uh, you got to hire for attitude, train for skills, provide that techno- technological support, and then uh, let them go. And boy, do they respond. Uh, you know, if you've hired the right people, they go. They. It's uh, 
a good friend of mine, Henry Stewart, wrote a great book called Happiness Manifesto. But in his first book, he talks a bit about that example, which is if you have always lo- had a lock on the stationary cupboard and you take the lock on the stationary cupboard, the stationary cupboard will be emptied by your staff because you've taught them that stationary is a rare commodity, so they'll take it. And so you give them that latitude and all that happens is all the stationary disappears, right? It's not, it's not the expected outcome. What other myths do you think people are holding on to or beliefs of people holding on to about culture? Well, uh, I think the most controversial one is how long it takes to change an organization's culture. And I've gotten the biggest pushback about that one because my belief is that if you have a passionate leader like Satya Nadella at uh, Microsoft, and he developed his passion, interestingly enough, uh, through personal adversity, uh, he has a member of his family who, who has some severe medical problems, and uh, that has really kept his feet on the ground, but he's passionate about the importance of people and the importance of organizational culture. If you have a passionate leader and a, a reasonably clear uh, idea of a process for changing a culture and maybe some advice on the side and the like, I believe, and in his case, uh, he feels that he had maybe six to nine months to make significant change in the culture at Microsoft. And think about it for just a minute. For these reasons, how long can you keep organizational uh, change or culture change at the top of your agenda? You're getting fired at from all directions, and you're going to you're going to be able to keep people involved in that particular crusade uh, for two years or three years. Uh, I doubt it, you know. And so, so many of these efforts founder along the way. Many uh, who uh, are engaged in this kind of work uh, tell us that you know almost many of these, the majority of these efforts fail. Well, first of all, I don't know what failure means because we rarely identify what a failed management effort means if you if you don't measure it on the bottom line. So here I am. I'm a CEO. What's the average tenure of a CEO these days? Is it four or five years? Maybe not that long. I don't know. And I say to myself, hmm, wow. I need to make change uh, and I need to impress investors. I need to impress my board. We need to move this company. I gravitate to strategy because you can change the strategy. We're told that we need to be agile these days, which is a lot of agility is associated with strategy change. So you you go to strategy, you say culture is important, but uh, I don't know, know, my tenure is not going to be that long. Am I really going to be known for changing the organization's culture? An academic group at North Carolina, University of North Carolina, did a study. They surveyed, I think, 2,000 senior executives. 92% of them said, our culture isn't what it should be. Okay, 92%. 16% said they were doing something about it. Think of that. 76%, three out of four, uh, they know they've got a problem, but they're they're not doing anything about it. There has to be a reason. And I think one of the reasons is that it's too daunting in their minds. They've got this built up in their minds. 
we were talking a little earlier. One of my favorite examples is uh, uh, John Legere, who came into T-Mobile, Deutsche Telekom's uh, investment in T-Mobile in the U.S. And he said to himself, you know, this, this may be my last job, you know. And basically he said, I'm going to have fun. We're going to change this place. We're going to hire different people, first of all. We're going to aim our service at youth, uh, at, at a younger generation. They're, you know, they're tech-oriented. They're not like me. Uh, I barely got on this call this morning. <laughs> but our target is the younger people. So we have to have people serving them who look and think like them and so forth. And I'm going to get in there. And John was, you know, John's in his 60s, I guess. I'm going to have fun. Uh, magenta is the company color. We're all going to wear magenta. I'm going to wear magenta every day. And he even had undershorts. Uh, <laughs> magenta. He wears magenta underwear while he's uh, CEO. John just retired uh, uh, a while back. And in order to fire these people up, I'm going to I'm going to go after our competition. These people are dead on their feet. You know, we got Verizon and we've got uh, AT and T. Uh, they are dumb and dumber. And he called them that in public in order to fire up this crew of employees. And then John did an interesting thing. He was never in the office. So the office fills up with teddy bears and all kinds of paraphernalia that it has been produced to hand around among employees and so forth. It goes around to Verizon stores, competition. And uh, they all have t-shirts too, you know? And he notices that when they get ready to go home, they change their clothes. And then he goes to the T-Mobile uh, stores and he watches, stands outside and watches, just stands around. People come out with their T-shirts on, their underwear, uh, sweatshirts, the whole thing, all T-Mobile. And they don't take them off. And that's one of his measures of, an, of a successful culture. John Legere changed the culture of that company in a very short period of time. At the same time, changed the strategy. I mean, he went through a merger. Now, T-Mobile is a is a tough competitor in this country. I like company swag, and I like corporate uniforms or T-shirts, baseball caps. The thing is, so often people see it as a cost, so they buy shit corporate T-shirts, which you know you're not going to wear. You might about you might clean your car windscreen with them, or cut them up and put them under the sink, but you wouldn't want to wear them. And people do that all the time. They send me corporate golf shirts, but it's with their logo on it. It's like, <laughs> just, they've missed the point completely. But I do, I think that pride, I mean, the the fact that the staff are wearing their stuff as they leave the office, there's the thing about culture that you were talking about there, that only a small group of people, it's not linear. It can be not where we want it to be, or it can be amazing and there's a valley of sort of maybe a valley of death in the middle, but. <laughs> Indeed. Another example. We all know the trials and tribulations of Uber and what it went through and so forth. And they were, <laughs> that, uh, that cor corporate culture was in grave danger with a change in leadership and some new people at the top. Uh, they brought in a colleague of mine, former colleague, since I'm, no longer active in the classroom, a woman named Frances Fry. 
And Francis, who uh, taught with us in the whole realm of service management, went in there and in, a, in the space of six months, worked with about 7,000 Uber executives directly and with a clear view of what needed to be done. And that culture, is it perfect? No. Uh, did it change remarkably? Yes. And so that's really what I'm talking about. But I'm still getting a lot of pushback from people who say, oh, wait a minute, you know, you're selling, you're selling a dream and uh, you're going to have a lot of disappointed executives. One of the things I do with clients, I think it starts with the leadership team. And culture to me is not a top-down activity. It's, it's every leader in the company, their team has a different culture unless you do something about it. And so then you say, well, what's the, what's the culture at the executive team level? And no company will outperform its executive team. <laughs> it's just not going to happen by accident. It has to be purposeful. And so I think what happens is, that, you know, the 70-odd percent of people who know the culture is not where it wants to be, it's hard work. And they're, they're work shy. Or sometimes I talk to clients as we do an onboarding, and I'll say, well, how do you rate your team? And they'll say, I think our team is a, is a six or a seven. And I'll say, okay, uh, but you've been on a great team. Oh, yes, I've been on this amazing team. 10 out of 10, brilliant, da, 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 da. Can you tell me the difference between that team and this team? Yes. Okay, well, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> They're just going through the motions because I think it's leadership. They lack, they lack leadership and there's, there's no clear vision. And so we try to help them. Leadership is the game. If you do the measures in terms of uh, studying uh, engagement surveys, for example, the results that employees give you from, from engagement surveys, and you relate that to, uh, to some of the other measures, basically you have to conclude that at the, at the base of all of this is trust. How do you establish trust? This is an oversimplification, but that's, you know, that's kind of our business these days. <laughs> You establish trust by setting expectations and then meeting them or not setting expectations, but finding out what people's expectations are and then not disappointing them in a sense. In situations where you have to surprise them with a, uh, you know, the announcement of a new location or something, you go back and tell them why you couldn't tell them at the time that you, you know, you had to make that decision. You, and that's, how you establish trust, an oversimplified recipe for trust, for establishing trust. But without the trust, nothing else works. And that it's the leader that has to do that, whether the, the leader is a frontline leader or at the top of the organization or anywhere in the middle for that matter. James, what are you thinking about hybrid work? Do you think cultures are you can create a great culture if everybody's sitting at home in their undershorts or are you are you pro office or uh i think this is a real challenge and it, it's a challenge for those of us who are primarily interested in organizational culture it was the uh, the ceo of a of a u.s banking organization called the fifth third bank uh, whom i will paraphrase he said uh uh, we can be a good organization uh, working in a hybrid fashion, but we'll never be a great organization that way, as he called <laughs> everybody back 
to the office, wherever the office might be. I think there's something to be said for that, but it seems to me that the goal, the most we can hope for is to preserve the quality of the culture in a hybrid environment. I don't think we're going to improve it. I think the, the, the task is to try to make sure that we don't destroy it. And that means a minimum, a prescribed level of face-to-face -face contact, first of all. You don't build a culture on, uh, you know, remote technology. At the same time, you know, you have to admit that people do like to work uh, from home, maybe not full-time. Uh, I think we've gotten a little tired of that during the pandemic, but uh, we've gotten a taste of working at home and a couple of days a week uh, when I don't have to commute sounds pretty good. We may be able to live with that if we can get people together at the same time in the same place for some portion of their time. Companies that are studying this and trying to figure out how to work themselves. I, I was trying to think of the name of a company in Calgary, Canada. They have studied the issue and uh, have found several things. And the company's name is uh, Critical Mass is the name of the company. They have found that uh, you have to have, I'll call them this, and, and I've, I've written a little bit about it in my blog, but uh, uh, you have to have sponsors. If you're going to have somebody working uh, remotely, that person has to have a sponsor. You have to bring those people together every once in a while. Semex, a company based in Monterey, Mexico, does a really great job of bringing their leadership uh, together. But here's the rub. It's very expensive. So that at Semex, and I think in many organizations, they're going to find that, yes, uh, working remotely saves cost and it increases productivity a bit, but we're going to have to use that productivity increase to spend money to bring those people together more frequently than we otherwise would. And we're going to have to pay the bill. So I don't think people, uh, companies are going to save any money working in a hybrid fashion. And they're going to be challenged uh, to preserve their culture. Uh, I think it can be done, but only with a great deal of effort. And I'm not sure we're there yet. We're learning. It is interesting. I mean, that I think that business you referred to is a uh, digital digital business. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's it's interesting because <laughs> I was talking to somebody recently and they said, God, you guys in the tech space, you know, like this all work from home thing. You know, this, this guy works for a, a house construction business. And he said, the management let us go home grudgingly. And the moment we could all be back at work, we were all back at work. In the UK, I think it's 25% of people in full-time employment have worked from home or are currently still working from home in some way. And so, you know, the vast majority of people, you know, nurses, uh, teachers, you know, there are lots of people who, who can't work from home. How do you build a house, uh, you know, remotely? <laughs> so in some ways, in some ways that when people are thinking about that, it's a small bit of office workers who are a small bit themselves of the whole population who always were candidates for working from home. I've thought about people 
who are engaged in uh, various kinds of advisory work, uh, management consultants have always lived wherever they preferred to live because they travel to a job or they work from home, but the job may be anywhere in the world. Yep. And often they get bored of living out of a suitcase. <laughs> right. <laughs> so Zoom's been fantastic. It's interesting. You know, we, uh, the work that we do with clients, you know, it all went fully remote and then we'd done it fully remote for three months and then there was a window of opportunity and we did two days face-to-face with a new client in Spain. We'd got used to Zoom, but it was probably only 70% as good as face-to-face. When you say you can't build culture with remote technology, I just, I just wondered what you were thinking, having researched this topic and you know, it's this sort of intangible stuff, what do you think it is? Or is there anything in when you've done studies in the past that points to what it is that's missing through remote technology versus face-to-face? Well, first of all, we're humans. I, I'm not sure humans were uh, developed over, they, <laughs> humans developed over time to work remotely. Uh, we're, we're kind of a social animal, uh, which may distinguish us from some other animals. And as a social animal, you may be able to put up with, for good reason, and we had good reason for working remotely, don't get me wrong, you may be able to put up with a strong rationale for working remotely for some period of time. Uh, But as you point out, a certain relatively large proportion of us got fed up. And not only could we not see our colleagues at work, we couldn't even see our friends at home. I mean, that was even worse. And most of us said to ourselves, I miss the office. I was just reading an article uh, yesterday about how back at the office means, uh, you know, all the bad things that go with working in the office, harassment, difficult relations, wasted time and all that sort of thing. So, you know, it is what it is, but I think a lot of us missed that to some extent. Not the harassment maybe, but. <laughs> you know, totally. <laughs> it's, it's uh, I think you're right. That whole the whole, you know, human evolution, you know, there's one school of thought that says the reason that we outmuscled the Neanderthals is because we came together in groups of about a hundred. They were small family units and we just, just pushed them out. And we gathered together as these midgets and uh, slayed the dragon, you know? Yeah. Teamwork. It's, it's, it's where competitive advantage is based. That's why the culture is important. It's people doing the right thing when they haven't been told to do it. That gets us to another important element in the book and in previous work that we've done. I'm convinced that organizations that are built around teams are going to win in the same business against organizations that hire and and reward stars. If you look at the truly successful organizations in their industries. Now, and and I'll grant you, there are certain industries that are pretty difficult to work as a team. If you're an engineer at Schlumberger and you're sent out into the, into the wilds of, you know, Norway to do some uh, test drilling for a company, you're out there alone and you're not going to have much of a team in that case. But in businesses where you can work in teams, do it. In that respect, I cite several organizations in the book. We have a medical organization, or several really, but uh, Cleveland Clinic is one. Uh, Mayo Clinic, uh, they were really based on Mayo Clinic. At Mayo Clinic, 
they perform highly specialized work. I mean, they, they do the difficult stuff. People come from all over the world to a Mayo Clinic facility. The philosophy is that they are patient-centered. That's the culture. We're not centered around the caregivers. We're centered around the patient. So uh, if you go to Mayo Clinic in two days, you can have scheduled a test, diagnosis, some conclusions, retest, new diagnosis as they work through these complex ailments. And the idea is that everybody schedules their time around the patient. If you're doing that, you can't have a star. These people, they have stars, but they became stars because they work in an outstanding organization. Go to another organization, and I think Boris Greisberg, one of my uh, colleagues, has said, you know, they studied stars that went to other organizations where uh, stars either weren't particularly important or where they were. They didn't do as well. They just did not do as well. And the idea, uh, people think of the Harvard Business School, and we have stars. No, no, we don't have stars. There's a, a, a limit on the salary, and everybody abides by the same limit, okay? Do we have people who have become stars? Oh, sure. Hey, the guy who wrote the foreword to my book, John Cotter, he's a star. But he, he became a star, and John's never forgotten the fact that he became a star because of his organization and the people working around him. And so uh, he doesn't stray all that far you know, from the campus. The idea of the star can really rip up an organization, particularly if the star is a great performer and does not know how to manage by the values. And, you know, years ago, we both, I'm sure, have studied uh, what General Electric did years ago with these people who are terrific at making their numbers and they're destroying people along the way. They can't manage by the values. They finally decided we can train somebody who can't make their numbers, but we can't do anything with these stars. They're going to have to go. And you say, oh, wow, lose all that performance. Numbers go out the door. The numbers don't go out the door. In 90% of the cases we've looked at, the numbers get better. People close in, form the team and say, boy, we're glad we got rid of that guy, you know and outperform themselves. Call that a toxic A. In my world, they had always been salespeople and network engineers. But, you know, you do that in an organization. You counsel them that they shouldn't be afraid. And the whole company does a happy dance when this jerk's no longer coming into the office. That's right. <laughs> and there's a strong signal to the rest of the company that, it, you know, it's that type of thing that then allows you to make those, you know, we were talking earlier about making culture change in six months. It's It's some of these big decisions say, shit, this has changed. Yep. Yep. James, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Oh, my. I wish that I had had the intuition, the uh, uh, maybe this conceptual knowledge to put together the relationships leading to employee engagement, the factors that influence employee engagement. Over the years, we've written about the service industry, and we've, we've talked about the fact that employee loyalty and engagement lead to customer loyalty engagement, which leads to profits and sales gains. Without thinking about 
okay, it starts with the employee, but uh, what happened before that? You know, we've, we've written kind of in a, an imperfect way about internal quality of the workplace, but we really didn't study it and we didn't understand, I don't think, the determinants of employee engagement and the loyalty that goes with it because employee loyalty will produce customer loyalty and customer loyalty is one of the biggest factors influencing bottom line performance. Well, I had Fred Reicheld on and one of the early papers from the 90s was, you know, a far percent reduction in churn can improve profitability by 95%. You know, it's that. And loyalty being one of those, employee loyalty being one of those drivers of, of customer loyalty. Yeah, Fred, I have worked with Fred and, uh, uh, and admire what they did for its simplicity because he boiled everything down to the essentials, I think. We mentioned uh, Frances Fry along the way, and she's written two fantastic books, Unleashed and Uncommon Service. I think was her early work about customer service. I had her on the podcast as well. She's fab. What other books would you recommend people pick up or that you've liked or? I think Ben Horowitz writes about culture in a very effective way. He is, what, co-partner, Andresen Horowitz, uh, the investment team. And uh, I think he nails it uh, quite often. Stefan Tomke has written about the experiment-based organization. Uh, he writes a lot about bookings.com in, uh, in the Netherlands and the, the way that that organization has been built around experimentation. I think nice work. Remind me, the CEO of salesforce.com, he has written a couple of books about the nature of that culture and uh, how it was developed. The most recent book was two or three years ago. And then I still go back to uh, ah, Tony Shea, the late Tony Shea's book about uh, his organization. Uh, he didn't found it, but he came in rather early in his development. Zappos.com, fellow who met an unfortunate end, but uh, nevertheless wrote really in, in an inspiring fashion about his own experiences in building a culture in that particular organization. Those are some of them. Delivering Happiness by Tony Shea and Mark Benioff is the CEO. At, yeah, uh, Mark Benioff, right. <laughs> I'm embarrassed. Ah, <laughs> uh, you haven't had enough caffeine yet today. James, an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you very much indeed for giving us your time. I appreciate it so much. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.